Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. It's James Rudd here, the digital media editor at Here at Heart. And I'm delighted today to welcome back to the podcast Dr. Ramesh Nadaraja from the University of Leeds. And Ramesh, along with his uh, co-authors, has written a piece of original research, which is all about the prediction of short-term atrial fibrillation using primary care electronic healthcare records. It's funded by the British Heart Foundation, and the senior author is Professor Chris Gale. I hope you enjoy the show, and please feel free to click on the link in the podcast show notes to read the paper. And do leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help us to reach new audiences. Thanks very much. Uh, it's a great pleasure to welcome everybody to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm delighted to introduce Dr. Ramesh Nadaraja from uh, University of Leeds. Ramesh, can you give the uh, Heart audience an idea of who you are, what you do, and uh, and where you work? Thank you, James. It's a great pleasure to be able to speak on the podcast again. Thank you very much for the invitation. Uh, my name is Ramesh Nadaraja, and I'm a British Heart Foundation Clinical Research Fellow based at the Leeds Institute of Data Analytics at the University of Leeds, uh, working under Professor Chris Gale. And I'm also a cardiology registrar based at Leeds Teaching Hospitals. And Ramesh, I wanted to get you on the podcast to talk about a paper you've just published uh, in Heart, which is called The Prediction of Short-Term Atrial Fibrillation Risk Using Primary Care Electronic Healthcare Records. And it's a piece of original um, research. Um, maybe you could start off by talking about what prompted you to write this paper, uh, sort of why it's an important issue and what's already known about trying to predict AF from electronic healthcare records. Uh, yeah, so aid fibrillation is obviously an important issue and it's well known to all of your uh, listeners. Um, and everyone's also aware that there has been a significant research focus on atrial fibrillation screening in particular over recent years. Um, we know that atrial fibrillation is very common. In fact, some work from our research group has shown that uh, there are now more new cases of atrial fibrillation diagnosed each year in the UK than the four most common causes of cancer combined. Uh, over 1.3 million people diagnosed in the UK, over 39 million people diagnosed worldwide. And of course, everyone's aware that uh, atrial fibrillation is associated with a range of adverse outcomes, including heart failure, cognitive decline, death and, and a five-fold increased risk of stroke. But we also know that a significant burden of the disease, approximately 35% or so, is undiagnosed and that 10 to 15% of ischemic strokes occur in the context of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. Uh, we have treatments, oral anticoagulation, that is effective for reducing the risk of stroke and death. And so there is a rationale for the early detection of atrial fibrillation to prevent adverse events. Accordingly, uh, the European Society of Cardiology and the European Heart Rhythm Association both advocate atrial fibrillation screening. Uh, in the most recent uh, European Society of Cardiology guidelines, uh, there was a class 2A recommendation for uh, opportunistic screening in individuals uh, aged 65 and above and systematic ECG screening in individuals aged 75 and above or with stroke risk factors. And more locally to the UK, uh, in the NHS long-term plan, uh, early detection of atrial fibrillation is a key cardiovascular priority. So there's that general uh, feeling that atrial fibrillation screening is a thing that's uh, potentially very important. And we know from uh, a number of randomised control trials, uh, screen AF, 
rehearse, M stops, etc. That systematic, so that means you know a stratum of the population you're going out and screening, that it's feasible to do this, that it increases detection of atrial fibrillation compared to routine care, and that that leads to an increased prescription of all anticoagulation. And we know from the stroke stop randomized control trial published in the Lancet in 2021 that the offer of atrial fibrillation screening uh, in individuals aged 75 and 76 uh, compared to routine care was associated with a, a modest clinical benefit in terms of a composite outcome of ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke, uh, systemic embolization, uh, hospitalization leading to, as a result, bleeding and all cause death. But the clinical effectiveness and the cost effectiveness of atrial fibrillation screening uh, is limited by the yield of new cases that are detected during a screening approach. So, for example, in that stroke stop randomized control trial, there was only a 3% yield of new atrial fibrillation cases amongst individuals who were uh, investigated. So our hypothesis is that if we can better define the population at high risk of atrial fibrillation, we can make atrial fibrillation screening more clinically effective and cost effective and more efficient. We can do this by using a multivariable algorithm. Okay, so just to summarize, so the ESC tells us that we should be screening and, and they say op opportunistic in patients over 65 and systematic. And by op opportunistic, you mean presumably just a medical practitioner feeling somebody's pulse and looking for atrial fibrillation as opposed to systematic screening where you're targeting using an ECG uh, members of a certain subset of the population. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So the, the 2020 guidelines recommended um, opportunistic screening. And as you say, that means during a healthcare interaction, either pulse palpation or using an ECG rhythm strip. Though actually having said that, since the publication of those guidelines, there's been a couple of important trials, the D2AF trial and the Vital AF trial, which looked at opportunistic screening in a, in a primary care setting, um, either using pulse palpation or an ECG rhythm strip. And they actually found in contemporary practice that actually that intervention was not associated with an increased detection of atrial fibrillation in individuals aged 65 and above compared to routine care. But there was a signal in the vital AF trial that uh, there may be increased detection rates in individuals aged 85 and above. So actually, whether opportunistic screening is the way forward, especially by an age-based approach, may not may not be effective. Um, but I say the systematic approach, that's identifying a stratum of the population to proactively offer uh, some sort of AF detection technology. So that could be a handheld monitor, an app, a patch, etc. Uh, that does have a two-way recommendation. And, and a number of the studies that I mentioned earlier have shown that that does increase detection rates compared to routine care. Okay. And so as part of your research, you decided to try to identify those at the highest risk of atrial fibrillation and you used an electronic healthcare record technique. What did you actually set out to do and uh, and how did you go about doing it? We know that a large percentage of the population are registered in primary care with an associated electronic health record. So that's, for example, 98% of the UK population. So if you want to administer mass systematic screening, this appears an appropriate medium through which to identify the individuals who are eligible for your screening approach. Um, and accordingly, because these electronic health records have health data in them, this is also an appropriate medium to try to use that data to guide screening more effectively than just using age or just using stroke risk. Um, we actually conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis 
of algorithms that had been developed or validated in this medium, uh, community-based electronic health records, for predicting instant atrial fibrillation, which I was um, fortunate enough to speak to you about on a previous podcast. Um, but we actually found there were a number of shortcomings with the currently available algorithms. So um, first of all, many weren't actually very highly predictive. Secondly, uh, uh, many predicted long-term risk of atrial fibrillation, so within five or 10 years, but that's less useful for deciding who we should be screening in the short term for atrial fibrillation. We also found, as you'll be aware, that uh, in routine eclipsed records, many things such as observations and biomarkers, etc., are missing in a large percentage of the population. But many of these algorithms required those um, variables as part of their risk prediction. So therefore, they weren't scalable across the population. They could only be applied to a minority of the population. And also, we found that many um, provided a estimate of the algorithm's performance, but they didn't check whether the algorithm's performance was equally good in different in both sexes or across different ethnic groups, which is important when one considers implementing these sort of risk-guided approaches at scale across a population, across a diverse population. Mm. So therefore, what we set out to do was using data available in community-based electronic health records, we aimed to train and test an algorithm that would be highly predictive of instant atrial fibrillation, but also predict risk over a short term, so only the next six months, so that would be clinically relevant and relevant to the decision about whether we should investigate this individual or not. Furthermore, we set out to make sure the algorithm is scalable across uh, the population. And finally, we wanted to check that the performance of the algorithm was fair and to check that it was robust across both sexes and different ethnic groups. And uh, Ramesh, what methods did you use to uh, accomplish these goals? So a six-month timeline is the important thing, isn't it, that differentiates this from other studies? Yes, so we were fortunate enough to have access to um, the CPRD goal data set, which a number of your listeners will be aware of. And this is a, a, a very large data set of routinely collected UK primary care electronic health records, over 2 million individuals in the data set we used, and it's secondary care linked, so therefore we had good coverage of diagnosis of atrial fibrillation both in the primary care and secondary care setting, and we know that it's representative of the UK population in terms of age, sex and ethnicity. We defined a population who were aged um, 30 and above uh, without a preceding diagnosis of atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter. And we looked to predict the risk of instant atrial fibrillation within the next six months at a short, a short term window. Uh, deliberately uh, to make it scalable, we restricted the variables the model could use to age, sex, ethnicity and comorbidity. So we deliberately did not include observations or laboratory results. And in terms of the actual model development, we leveraged uh, supervised machine learning. Uh, so we, we used a random forest classifier, and we used that because our systematic review had evidenced strong discriminative performance, prediction accuracy performance for AF prediction using uh, random forest classifiers in different electronic health record data sets, and also the electronic health record providers on our scientific advisory board advised us that this was a, a machine learning technique that they could actually implement within their, their current health structures. And, and we also trained a, a multivariable logistic regression model as a comparison. In terms of the analysis, we uh, 
partitioned randomly our very large data set to train the algorithm and a testing set to uh, an independent testing set to test the algorithm across uh, bootstrap validation across 200 samples and we checked a range of performance metrics we also checked uh, the performance of uh, our random forest classifier the find af algorithms what we called it against other previously developed scalable algorithms so we compared it against the chads basque algorithm which of course everyone's aware we use to predict risk of stroke in atrial fibrillation has often been an eligibility criteria for screening trials and has been tested for prediction of atrial fibrillation and the chess score which was originally developed in asian individuals without structural heart disease for predicting instant atrial fibrillation and after we checked performance for short-term atrial fibrillation we also calculated or plotted Kaplan-Meier plots for higher and lower risk individuals by the algorithm to understand whether high risk of atrial fibrillation in the short term also translated into long-term risk of atrial fibrillation as well. And what were your headline results? I see that these are beautifully summarized in figure four in your paper, and I'll, I'll put a link to the open access paper in the show notes of the podcast, but maybe uh, for the audience who uh, who haven't got access to it immediately, can you talk through your headline results, Ramesh? Yes. Yeah, so um, I'd, I'd hope everyone be able to access the records if they want. Um, we deliberately made it open access to try to allow everyone to be able to view it. Um, but, but some interesting results were that obviously there is a discussion about whether we should be using an age-based approach or a risk-based approach. But actually, when we looked at the cases of atrial fibrillation that were diagnosed in routine practice over the next six months, we actually found that a fifth of the new cases were in individuals aged below 65. So taking a purely age-based approach or using that as a minimum criteria for eligibility means you probably will miss a significant burden of, of new cases or people at risk of atrial fibrillation. So one fifth. Okay. So one fifth, said- yeah, 20.9%. So much higher than we actually expected. So if we had stuck religiously to the ESC guidelines, uh, which suggest opportunistic screening over the age of 65, you wouldn't have picked up uh, 20% roughly of, of cases. Okay, interesting. And then in terms of uh, meeting the targets of what we set out to do, I felt we met a significant number of them. So first of all, we wanted to make sure this algorithm could be applied at scale. And we found that across the testing data set, we were able to apply the algorithm to every single record without any hindrance from missing data. In terms of predictive accuracy, we found that the uh, the find AF algorithm was highly predictive. So the area under the receiver operating characteristic curve, so an, an understanding of discrimination performance, that is, how well do you identify higher risk versus lower risk individuals, uh, the performance was 0.824. So that's by most measures, an excellent discrimination performance. And this was superior to the uh, to the Chas Fast score and the Chess score. And also when we looked at metrics such as the Breer score, um, which is a measure of both discrimination and calibration, it was again very good and superior to these other two algorithms. Furthermore, when we did some decision curve analysis and looked at reclassification, so the idea that individuals who might be incorrectly identified as higher risk and lower risk by other algorithms, we found that the FindF algorithm was superior to the Chasvask and Chester algorithms, and also that it would that its application should be associated with clinical benefit rather than harm. When we looked at individuals identified as higher risk, we found that within the next six months, individuals identified as higher risk 
had a 20-fold higher incidence of atrial fibrillation compared to the individuals who were identified as lower risk. Therefore, we felt that we were correctly identifying differences between high-risk and low-risk individuals. And I think also importantly, we checked if you compared individuals who were considered high risk versus let's say all the individuals aged over 65 or all the individuals aged over 75, we found that um, a higher proportion of the individuals identified as higher risk developed atrial fibrillation compared to these age-based approaches. Therefore, our hypothesis is that if you applied it, you'd be more efficiently targeting individuals at risk of atrial fibrillation. And then finally, in terms of fairness, we found that uh, of the people defined as higher risk, 5% of them were actually aged below 65. So we were identifying a cohort of individuals who would often not be uh, eligible for NH fibrillation screening, but we would be if we used a risk-guided approach. And in terms of fairness, um, in terms of uh, by different sexes and ethnicity, we found that the performance of the five-day algorithm was excellent and robust. So it was equally strongly predictive in men and women, and for all ethnic groups, uh, discrimination performance was was um, at least 0.8 or above, whereas other algorithms showed varying performance by different sexes and ethnic groups. And finally, in terms of um, whether short-term risk translates to long-term risk, we did find that individuals identified at risk of short of atrial fibrillation within the next six months are also at risk of atrial fibrillation over the course of the next 10 years. So um, the hazard ratio uh, adjusting for competing risk of death was 8.75 between higher risk individuals and lower risk individuals. And the individuals at higher risk, uh, about 12% of them had developed atrial fibrillation by 10 years, even in routine clinical care. Okay, I mean, a lot to digest there. But as I say, everything is open access. And your figure four nicely summarizes everything that you've just discussed. But um, were there any surprising findings that you, you weren't expecting and you and the team were, were surprised by Ramesh? And also, maybe you could touch briefly on the, the limitations of, of your study. Um, well, I, I guess the, the most surprising result, which is what you already highlighted, James, was that there was actually a fifth of new cases who were aged below 65. So that really suggested to us that if we are thinking about age fibrillation screening, we shouldn't necessarily be sticking rigidly to age-based paradigms around who may or may not develop it. Um, I, I also think that it was important to us to understand that the performance of an algorithm was fair across both sexes and across different ethnic groups, because obviously that would be important if one was going to implement this across the population. But of course, we are aware of a significant number of limitations in our work. We deliberately used routinely collected records because we wanted to make sure the algorithm could be applied in routinely collected records. But because this is routine practice, the instance of atrial fibrillation may have been underestimated. So there may have been more people who had atrial fibrillation who just hadn't been diagnosed in routine care. We also deliberately excluded variables such as systolic blood pressure or BNP uh, or BMI, which we know are associated with, with atrial fibrillation risk, but obviously are missing at in, in routine records. So uh, we deliberately excluded them to make sure our algorithm was scalable across the population. And though we assessed a random forest classifier for this task, we are aware that other machine learning methods may have performed differently in this data set. And similarly, 
as the Q risk algorithm has to be updated every few years uh, to to understand that there are differences in population characteristics over time, similarly the FindF algorithm would have to be updated over time uh, to in incorporate these changes. And what do you think the implications of your results might be, Ramesh? Do you think this is now something that we should consider rolling out at larger population or larger proportion of the, of the UK or other countries, for example? In terms of the overall field of atrial fibrillation screening, um, we've obviously had significant advances uh, with the uh, stroke stop study and the loop study, but there are further studies which we await to see, such as the GARD AF study and the SAFER study, uh, which report later this decade, which will uh, give us a better understanding of the clinical effectiveness of atrial fibrillation screening. But of course, we are aware that um, the cost effectiveness of such an approach should continue to improve as the cost of oral anticoagulation uh, falls over the forthcoming years. And we know there is a priority to detect atrial fibrillation in the community earlier than we currently do, where the burden of disease is uh, currently undiagnosed disease currently resides. We deliberately designed this algorithm to be implementable at scale in uh, primary care or community-based electronic health records, because this would make it uh, available through a platform that clinicians already use at point of care. So they could use this to identify of the people they see in front of them. Should we be doing something with these individuals? Should we be giving them a test? Should we be feeling their pulse, etc.? But also because these electronic health records are available at scale um, and are held centrally, this could be implemented at scale at geographically disparate sites to provide a nationwide approach to uh, more efficient screening or for the individuals who are younger who are identified at higher risk of atrial fibrillation, and that risk extends both in the short term and the long term, you could design programs around this risk stratification to try to improve their risk factor profiles for atrial fibrillation and other adverse events. But in terms of what can we do with the algorithm, I think that kind of comes on to what we're doing next uh, with the algorithm. So uh, we've tested it, of course, in a, in a UK setting, but now we're testing its performance in international settings as well. So we're currently conducting an external validation with Israeli collaborators in the Klarlet Health System database, which, of course, has been used for uh, significant insights around the COVID-19 vaccinations recently. And also, we're very grateful to the British Heart Foundation and Leeds Hospital Charity, who have funded a prospective interventional non-randomized pilot implementation study of the algorithm where we're enrolling 2000 participants and we are coupling uh, risk stratification with the use of an AF detection device which is analogous to a systematic screening approach to inform us on the effectiveness of a risk-guided AF screening approach. Brilliant well it sounds like um, you've got plenty of future work uh, in this area, Ramesh, lined up uh, for you and the team in Leeds. And uh, obviously the BHF study sounds incredibly exciting, as does the validation study in uh, Israeli cohorts. So thanks once again for, for joining us and uh, educating us all about the importance of screening for AF, which can be a, you know, a devastating disease, as you say, with some really nasty complications, many of which can be prevented if we just identify the people um, at risk of those complications. Uh, as I say, the trial and the paper is free to access for anybody, and I'll put a link in the show notes. And uh, yeah, once again, thanks ever so much for joining us, Ramesh. Thank you very much, James, for having me on today. It's been a real pleasure to speak to you. Thank you very much. Thank you.